guys here. It is definitely different. I was telling somebody last week was the first week we had a group of people back in the room besides our great and faithful tech workers and band who's here faithfully every week. And it was actually, it was stranger last week than it was on the weeks when there was nobody here just to see such you know, everybody's so dispersed or whatever. So I'm sure it'll take a little bit of getting used to for me as well as for you uh, because it's just unusual not to be able to hug people and high five and shake hands and all those good things we're used to doing. And so hopefully this will come to an end fairly soon and we can get back to somewhat of a normal uh, worship family gathering type experience. I read this quote this week and it, it was really, really powerful. And it says this, it says, a crossless gospel will only yield flimsy, even spineless Christians in an already challenging world. Let me read that again. A crossless gospel will only yield flimsy, even spineless Christians in an already challenging world. And I, I, I think what he's getting at there and what what's that kind of speaks to is so much of the time the gospel is made about simply us. It's God loves you, which we definitely embrace that. God definitely loves us. Jesus forgives you. Jesus cares about your life. And a lot of the emphasis oftentimes is put on what Jesus does for you, and very little emphasis is put on, at times in certain churches, on the cross. And I hope that's not true here at Grace, for sure. But the emphasis is more on what Jesus does for you than the cross and what Jesus did on the, on the cross for mankind and also what we just sang, absorbing the Father's wrath and he redeemed us, redeemed for himself a people. Scripture says there's multifaceted the purpose of the cross, but so many times it, we only focus on the one aspect of that. And today I want us, as we walk through the gospel and walk through the cross, I want us to see a bigger picture. Because as we get a bigger picture of the gospel and a bigger picture of the cross, it's going to change what we do and how we live our lives. I'm afraid that so many people live their life honestly, if we're, if we're truthful, like this. So the cross is very minor to us, and it's small, and it's something that we can easily tuck away when it's convenient. So if I'm around my Christian friends, I can get out my cross and I can be very Christian. I can, I can come across and say the words I need to say, say the things that make you feel like, oh, he's tracking with Jesus. He's doing what he needs to do. But it's so easy when the cross is small in our lives, and then we can just conveniently tuck that back into our pocket. And then when we're around our unchristian friends or a different scene, we can easily just conform to those people, and the cross is out of sight, out of mind. And I think the picture, and the, and the camera's going to follow me over here. I'm going to warn them walk over. The, the, the picture in the Gospels is carrying your cross is not some little cross that you can conveniently tuck away in your pocket, but carrying your cross is something that's not only significant, but it's something that defines you. It's something that defines us. And so I want you to think today as we walk through the Gospel, I want you to think about the cross as this size rather than this size and ask yourself the question really truthfully, practically in your life day to day, what's the cross look like? Let's pray and then we'll look at our text in Matthew chapter 15 today. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus. As we walk through this passage of scripture today, God, I pray that you will help us, as Mitch prayed, to not think about just 
all the cliches and all the images that we've had over the years, and the cross has lost its power because we've become so familiar with it, God. I pray that you will help us today to fresh and anew to see the cross for what it is. In Jesus' name, amen. The cross is the climax of Jesus' ministry, plain and simple. Mark 10, 45, we read this back weeks ago. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So leading up to the cross, the cross has been the focus. It is the point why Jesus came in the first place. He came to give his life away for a ransom for many. And I love what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, far, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Paul says, I'm all about boasting in the cross. This is not boasting in the cross. Hey, good to see you guys today. Uh, headed home, headed out, put my cross away, live my life this week. Next week we'll come back and we'll make a big deal about the cross. That is not boasting in the cross. I see boasting in the cross as everything about my life is to point people to Jesus. Do we all always live that way? Absolutely not. But that's what we're tracking toward. That's what sanctification, becoming more like Jesus is about. His purpose is our purpose, just like Jesus. We want the cross to be our mission, to lift up Jesus and boast in the cross, point people to the cross. And I think while it's going to be impossible for me today to look at the cross and cover all the theological applications and nuances of the cross and what it did, I think sometimes we can become so focused in on the theology of the cross that we miss out on really what we should be more about, which is considering the cross and contemplating the cross and, and thinking on the cross. And so today my goal, while I'm, I want to pull out significant theological things that we need, today I really want us to consider Jesus and Him crucified. So as we move through the gospel, Mark, as we talked about, even though we're on week 66, all right? There's nothing been fast about moving through this, so you might get a chuckle out of this. But, but Mark is a fast-moving gospel. Compared to the other gospels, for sure, he moves from one scene to the next very quickly. But when it comes to the crucifixion, Mark seems to really, really slow down here. I mean, it's almost like slow motion, frame by frame. And in fact, 20% of the gospel of Mark leads up to this narrative, is surrounding this narrative of the crucifixion. Mark gives one-fifth of the book to this aspect of the cross and what happens on the cross. And so verse 22 of chapter 15, And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And so the site of the crucifixion was a location outside of Jerusalem. Right in there is a fulfilled prophecy because the Old Testament tells us that. But it's, but it's a place called Golgotha. We call it Calvary, but Calvary is not really the term. You won't find that in your Bible, that's an English translation for a Latin, the Latin word, and it means this place of the skull. And, and I think Calvary sounds much more you know, sterilized than, than does the term Golgotha. It sounds much more like what really happens there. It's a place of execution, a hill of execution. It was a, a place of, the garbage was dumped. It was this place that people were taught, uh, brought to to be crucified so that they could be looked at and mocked at, and, say, and the Romans could point to them and say, this is what happens to those who try to stand against our empire. We want to make a, a picture out of you. We want to make 
a scene out of you. We want you to be degraded. And, and so this punishment they brought upon people in this day was to torture and humiliate and to violate them in every possible way. And that's exactly what happens for Jesus at the cross. And the cross, as we look at it, it's so barbaric. If we put ourselves in the situation and we think about the passion of the Christ, it's a barbaric way of treating a human being. And it's hard to imagine even how that someone could treat another human being in that way, regardless of what crime they thought they committed. And I think as people of the cross, we should be like Jesus and not buy into this in our day and age, which is a barbaric way of treating your enemies or those who oppose you by doing it in a maybe a political manner or in a, an abrasive, I'm better than you and I'm right and you're wrong type of way. We can fall into the same kind of dehumanization that the, the, they did minus all the physical persecution because we can hate our enemies rather than what Jesus told us and what Jesus displays on the cross, which is to love our enemies. And so this hill of crucifixion, this place of the skull, is the place where they brought Jesus and they put him on the cross and they raised him up for all to see and all to look at and to make an example of Jesus. In verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And, and this is really one of the only examples of any kind of compassion that you see in the crucifixion that oftentimes people would be allowed to offer the person being crucified some mixture which was like an anesthetic which would kill their pain. But Jesus refuses to do that. Jesus refuses to be void of his senses, to deaden his senses, to dull his senses. Why? Well, a couple of things, I think, at least. One, Jesus continues to do ministry on the cross, right? Think about it. Mark doesn't give the account, but what does Jesus do? Even though he's being mocked by the criminal next to him, the guy who deserves to be there, Jesus shares the gospel with him. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus reaches out to him. So he wants to be there. He wants to be there to help and minister. His mom also, John tells us, that he said, John, you take care of my mom. You be with my mom after I'm gone here. And so Jesus wants to stay alert. He wants to be aware of not just the physical struggle that he's going through, but the spiritual struggle that he's in, that Satan and the demons are at this moment in history trying to do all that they can do to destroy the Son of God. And Jesus needs to be there because why? If Jesus in his humanness could remove himself from that cross, then what would happen? We would all be condemned. And although we just think, oh, well, Jesus, he stayed there. We know he stayed there. But if Jesus had come down as he could of any second, then we would have been damned for eternity, condemned for all eternity. So there was a real spiritual battle that took place upon the cross. And then verse 24, again, we see a fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. I wish we could walk through this, but time won't allow us. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. So they take his own, the only thing he owns, his clothing, and they gamble for them and they divide them up. And it says in verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. So get the time frame into your mind. The third hour, this was 9 a.m. in the morning. 9 a.m. And we're going to see six agonizing hours of Jesus on the cross. Real agony, real pain, real horror. Verse 26. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. 
And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And so this was the crime, as we've talked about in the last few weeks, this is the crime that Jesus was condemned upon. This was the one that he was convicted on. Although the Jewish religious leaders wanted to condemn him on blasphemy, that was really their issue. They didn't care about Rome. That was their issue. The charge that Rome actually cared about was this idea that you rebel against us, you stir up the people against us, this is what happens to you. And apparently Pilate chose this inscription with a purpose in mind because he put the king of the Jews, the Jewish leaders came to him and said, change this, he's not our king, change this to this man claims to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, I've written what I've written, I'm not changing it. I think it was a gesture of contempt toward those because Pilate never wanted to really crucify Jesus in the first place. And then verse 27, it says, two robbers crucified again, fulfillment of prophecy, prophecy after prophecy. This is from Isaiah 53, 12, that said that Jesus would be numbered with transgressors and counted among the rebels. And so all this was fulfillment of God's plan. Verse 29, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved himself, but he can't say he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross, and we may see and believe, which of course they wouldn't have. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So he's mocked. He's mocked not in this passage, not only by the ordinary people, he's mocked by the religious leaders, and he's mocked by Rome. He is mocked from all sides. And the irony of this is. Jesus was dying to save all humanity, but instead of gratitude, all he received was mockery. And he could have come down and saved himself. But as I said, if he came down to save himself, he could not save us. And Luke records that Jesus responds to the crucifixion and the mockery with powerful words. He says, Father, forgive them that they don't know what they do. Forgive them. His words communicate God's indescribable love for his creation. People who are made in his image. And even in the midst of being tortured and mocked and ridiculed and, and treated beyond any way any human should have ever been treated. Again, he's teaching us to love our enemies. And he's showing us his love even in that moment. And then verse 32 to verse 33, we have three hours that pass. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. It's three hours from nine to noon that Jesus hung on that cross, suffering. Again, like I said about contemplating the cross, this past week, I try like every week or two, John Cunningham and I get together and uh, study scripture, talk about ministry. He was a former pastor. And this past week, went to his house and we opened up the scriptures and we're reading through the gospels and, and John Cunningham is 89 years old incredible Bible knowledge but as we sat there and we looked at the passage together and as he began to read a few verses I noticed that he paused and, and he was fighting back the tears coming out of his eyes and his voice cracked up I would dare say as a pastor he's read the gospel account the crucifixion account thousands of times but see that's what i'm talking about if the cross ceases to move us we got a problem it should wreck us 
And it doesn't wreck me all the time like it should. It doesn't wreck you like it should. But when we see that Jesus truly did this and won our redemption and satisfied the wrath of God and accepted us, it's got to move us. And I hope if God allows me to live 89 years on this earth, that it still moves me. And so let's contemplate it. Let's think about it. And it says in, the, in this verse that darkness was over the whole land. And this was clearly a supernatural thing that was happening here. Some people have tried to explain this away. It was an eclipse, but it couldn't have been an eclipse because it's Passover. And that was scientifically impossible with the moon the way that it was. And it lasted three hours. So the time that the sun should have been the, the brightest in the sky, high noon, and this, this shadow, this, this darkness came over the land. What was that about? What was it a picture of? Was it a picture of the sorrow that God had for his son and what he was going through? Was it a picture of judgment? We don't know exactly, but we know that, there, that it's there for a reason, that the darkness came over. And Jesus' soul was heavy. And even as he endured this physical pain, the emotional and spiritual pain was even so much greater. Look what he says in verse 35. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lambai, Sambachadai, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think this is really the, the lowest point of the humiliation, if you want to call it the lowest point. Because this is the part where I believe Jesus is fully aware of the absence of the Father. In fact, this is the, the only time the only time in the Gospels where Jesus doesn't refer to his father as father, as Abba. He says, my God, my God. He's asking, where are you, God? You remember Jesus, as he came to earth, he lived in perfect harmony with the Father. He only did what he saw the Father doing. What the Father told him, that's what he did. It was a beautiful picture of the Trinity and the way that God works and, and the way that God interacts among himself. And Jesus was perfectly in harmony with God throughout his life. But now he feels this horrible separation, the cup that he prayed, let this cup pass through me in the garden. Now it has come fully upon him. And he feels the abandonment of the Father as he bears the sins of the world and pays the price for redemption. Abba Father was not there at that moment as Jesus bore the sins of the world. Jesus isn't just on the cross relating to us as sinners. Jesus can know what it is like to be a sinner. 1 Corinthians tells us that Jesus became sin for us. The one who knew no sin became sin for us. And so we, we can't fathom that. We can't really understand that. How the perfectly, perfect spotless lamb, the son of God, how that he could take on Every sin, past, present, and future that had ever been or will ever be committed. He took those sins upon himself. And at that moment, in some way, God abandoned Jesus so that he doesn't have to abandon us. God abandoned Jesus at that moment so we do not have to be abandoned. And the horror of being abandoned by the Father was what was the essence of Jesus crying out, Why have you forsaken me? I can't help but to think, to step back from this picture and think about 
for those who reject Jesus Christ in his life. Those who really just get what they want all through a life. They, they, did want, they want to know part of God. They want to know part of Jesus and the cross throughout life. And so God gives them what they want when they reach eternity. Here it is. What you wanted on earth, you get for eternity. Life without God. The absence of God. And so as Jesus, and obviously he felt this so much more significantly than anybody else could ever imagine or feel because he was God. The abandonment of his father. But I can't help but to, to think about the horrors of hell when people are left with only the wrath of God for all eternity and the feeling of hopelessness. As I was reading and studying this week, that picture just grabbed hold of me. It's the absence of good and God and all they would know for all eternity is the wrath of God upon them. They get what they want. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. Whoever comes to me finds God, finds life, finds hope. And that's why it's our job is to, to share and to take up our cross and to point people to Christ. Because God has said, how can they know unless we tell them? How can they hear it unless a preacher, and that's just not me, that's you and I, tell them? And so it's our job to share this story, to share the crucifixion, to live the crucifixion, to carry the cross around with us in all that we do. One thing of, I think, important theological note here is the fact that some people, in which I don't have a perfect answer to this, but they, they say, I don't understand, so did God die on the cross? Well, God didn't die on the cross. We know that Jesus is one person who has two natures. He's all God and he's all man. I can't explain that. I can't get you an egg and show you how that works. I can't get any illustration to say, here's how the Trinity operates that would be perfect and complete. But here's the thing. Jesus had two natures. And he, we know that Christ could not die in respect to his divine nature. He could not stop being the triune God. That was impossible. So we do know that Jesus died on the cross in relation to his human nature, but not in relation to his divine nature. So if anyone ever asks you that question, did God die on the cross? Did, did, did God truly, truly die? No, Jesus in his humanity died. His soul was separated from his body. Verse 35. And some of the bypassers hearing it said, Behold, he's calling, calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge of sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. So some people, obviously, they misunderstood Jesus. When he used the Aramaic word for God, it sounds similar to the Hebrew word for Elijah. And some of the people run, and even as they give him something to drink, we don't know if that's an act of mercy or just more just kind of the same thing, shoving that thing in his face. We know that Jesus um, was, was relating to everything that we go through physically. That Jesus was thirsting. And this, again, was to fulfill prophecy. Psalm 69, 21, which states, And for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Again, just prophecy after prophecy fulfilled from the Old Testament with Jesus on the cross. And this mocking just continues. Even as they give him something and stick it in his face, it continues. They mock and they ridicule him. Come down. If you're, if you're, if you're really who you say you are, come down. Let Elijah come and, and save you. Yeah, right. Mockery, 
But the irony of the situation. Jesus, who in John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39 says, As anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For out of his very most being will flow rivers of living water. And Jesus says, I'm the source of living water. But at that time, the source of living water was dying of thirst. And then verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. John tells us that he cried out, and maybe this is the same cry, it is finished. It is finished. It is finished. Many people would have hung on the cross for days at this point. Jesus expires, which we know again, a fulfillment of the prophecy because of the Passover. They came and broke the criminal's legs so they would die quicker. But oftentimes people would hung, hang on the cross for several days. And, and, and this is really graphic, but many died this horrific death of suffocation because of the way they were pinned upon the cross, that they couldn't get enough air to breathe, couldn't get enough oxygen. And so on top of being scourged and beaten over and over again and, and whipped and, and punched, then Jesus is hung up like a common criminal. And he's barely able to get enough breath. But he musters up a, a loud cry even as he takes his last breath. And he cries out, it's finished. The rescue mission is complete. Jesus had finished the ultimate work that God had called him to do. To go to the cross. To redeem mankind. To appease. To satisfy. To vindicate the wrath of God. He did what Judaism what countless animal sacrifices, what the priesthood and what the law could never do. Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice for sins. The once for all sacrifice. Never again is a sacrifice needed. And look, the beautiful picture that happens, and we talked about this several weeks ago, but it's definitely worth revisiting the imagery that when, it, it, when Jesus cries out and when Jesus dies, the curtain, verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Most of you know this. Maybe some of you watching online don't know this. But this curtain separated the people from the holies of holy, where God's Shekinah glory, where his presence would dwell up in the temple. And the priest once a year could go in and offer this sacrifice, this atoning sacrifice for the people. And he could only go in one time every year. However, Curtain is torn from top to bottom, again, symbolizing man couldn't have done this. This could only be done by God. And it opens up the way, and Hebrews talks so much about this, the imagery here that we don't have a high priest who just goes in one time and he offers his sacrifice for the sin and has to go back and keep doing it again and again, that Jesus goes in the holy place and he stays there. Unlike the Jewish high priest, Jesus goes in and he sits down, Hebrews says, and his work is finished forever at the right hand of God. He's there. He's sitting. And the death of Jesus reconciles us to God. We can now have fellowship with God because of Jesus Christ. That he has made a way for us permanently to know God and be in God's fellowship. Never again have to do something to measure up. And then the fitting response is from a Roman soldier, a hardened Roman soldier who's crucifying Jesus. It's been part of this whole thing. And when the centurion who stood facing him 
saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Amazing. Truly. Was it the way that Jesus forgave his enemies? Was it the way that he loved his tormentors? Was it the way that he died? Was it the way that he prayed and cried out to God? All of these things. The centurion took all these things in. And he said, this was no mere man that just died. This was the Son of God. This was somebody special. And so even in his death, people at the cross, even before the resurrection, he's drawn someone to him, the thief drawn to him. Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to Jesus. I will draw all men to myself, Scripture says. And I can't help but think, you know, as we lift up our cross, as we are bold with our cross and holding out our cross instead of tucking it away, but living it and, and, and showing the life that Jesus lived and telling people the life that Jesus lived and the death that he died. I can't help but you don't have to be the greatest on your feet in evangelism or know all these cool things to say in response to every objection. I think the main thing we just need to do is lift up the cross. Sure, we should know Scripture. Sure, we should understand the arguments and be able to understand the philosophies of this world so we can speak against them. But don't let that stop you that you don't know all these things. I can promise you, if you lift up the cross, lift up Jesus, Jesus will draw people to himself. So please don't say, I'm going to wait you know, and get my cross out when I can fully explain all the theological ramifications of what happened on the cross. Don't do that. Take your cross out. Shine it. Let the world see. Because the gospel changes everything. If you put your faith in Christ, Scripture says, Christ is in us. He's the hope of glory. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's restored communion with God the Father because of Jesus. He's given us grace greater than all of our sins to live differently and to love differently. He's totally accepted us. Nothing we can do can earn us more of God's acceptance. Nothing we can avoid can earn us more of God's acceptance. God has fully and completely accepted us in Jesus Christ. Nothing can change that if you're his child. To believe the gospel means that you've died with Christ and you've been risen with Christ. And, and, and tragically, over the years, Christianity, at least in our lifetimes, has focused so much on the eternal life side of Christianity that we've avoided the fact that eternal life starts now, that we have the Holy Spirit, we've been given a mission, we've been given a purpose, and God has empowered us to be his ambassador, Scripture says. And so don't wait for eternity to sing his praises and sing him and say, wow, I missed my opportunity. Take your opportunity. See Jesus. See the cross lifted up. I love this quote by John Stott, and we'll finish here and move to the interview. John Stott says, The cross is like a blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled, but we have to get near enough to it for it sparks to fall on us. It's a blazing fire, but we have to move nearer. How do we do that? How do we move nearer the cross? Well, Mitch said one today, preach the gospel to yourself. And I was thinking about this as he said that. That's so practical, preaching the gospel to yourself. Let me just give you practical examples. When your mind starts to drift and you think, if only my life could look like this, 
or if only I had that, or even if we try to some way spin it with some kind of good result at the end. You know, if I had all this stuff, I could do so much good. And we begin to fantasize and live somebody else's life or, or, or think about living a different way or somewhere else on our own terms, by our own standards, and away from God. We need to stop ourselves at that point and begin to preach the gospel to ourselves. We say, thank you for the cross. You've redeemed me. You've saved me. You've moved me from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Everything has changed. And you preach that gospel to yourself at those moments. You memorize the gospel. You memorize scripture. You fill your mind with scripture. You pray the gospel. You sing the gospel. These are things that we can do to center our life and move near the cross. And those are really practical things that you can do. And then the final one, which I have, Larissa Edson is going to join me on this one, is to review the cross, renew the cross in our minds. Review how the cross has changed our lives over and over again. How has the cross made a difference in our lives? How, have I, how am I different today than I was before? So as Larissa comes up, she's, I asked her this question. I said, specifically, will you talk about how the cross has changed you? And she said, can I talk about specifically how it, how it changed my marriage? And I said, oh, absolutely. I'd love for you to talk about that. And so I warned Jerry, probably this is going to be a lot about negative about him, like how you put up with him, not really. What, what, what did you mean by that? What, what did you mean by the gospel, how it's changed your marriage? The gospel has changed my marriage in a way that if it wasn't for the gospel, I wouldn't be married. Um, five years ago, five, not five years ago, five years into our marriage, um, Jerry told me he had cheated on me. And how do you take that? How do you, how do you move past that? How do you have a marriage when you feel like he literally just took a cup and he just dropped it and it just shattered everywhere? How do you, how do you rebuild that? And especially when you go to the world sometimes and the world says, you know, our sin labels us, the world labels us with that and they call you a, he's a cheater, once a cheater, always a cheater. You can't trust him. You'll never be able to trust him. You should just leave. The thing is, no one told me to stay. Hmm. No one. And I didn't. I don't hear God. He doesn't. We don't sit there and have a conversation. But I felt him in my heart tell me, stay. Trust me. And I remember two days after he had told me, looking at him and crying, saying, I know that God's going to use this one day. I know that he's going to get the glory from this. I don't know how. I don't know how he can fix this. How can you put something back together that's so shattered? But I knew that he could. Now, does that make it easy? No, no, not at all. It was, um, it was a challenge because my cross was little. My cross was in my pocket. My cross wasn't big. And so, but yet... I had the foundation of the gospel that I knew. I had that hope that God could do this. But at the same time, I kind of was like, yeah, really, you can do this? Go ahead, show me. Show me. And it was almost like he was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to show you. Let me show you what I can do. And he just piece by piece picked it up and put it back together. And piece by piece, I 
kicked it right back down because I was mad. I mean, this is my husband, and he destroyed my family. We had a two-year-old, and he did this to me, and I was angry. And God said, it's okay. It's okay that you're angry. Trust me. Forgive him. I forgave him. I'm like, well, good for you. You know, I, I can't. I can't do that. And God is so patient, and he's so loving, and he's so kind and gentle as he, when I'm having these conversations with him and I'm arguing with him that he doesn't understand what Jerry did is unforgivable. That you can't forgive. You can forgive me for the things that I do, but you can't forgive that. God's like, no, he did. I forgave him. Let me help you learn how to forgive. Let me help you learn how to trust again. Let me help you learn how to go from your small cross to understand what it really means. And so this giving him forgiveness and living the gospel out has changed a lot in your marriage? It has. It has. Like today? Like what's like some people yeah. may not know you guys. What's, yes, what's we've, going? we've been married now. Um, next month will be 16 years. We have... Um, we have five children together. Um, one, we have to love on one day in heaven. But we have five children together and almost 16 years of marriage. And um, I'd love to sit here and say it's amazing. Oh, my gosh, it's so beautiful and wonderful. It is beautiful, but it is a messy beautiful. Mm. It's, it's messy, but the difference now is that we communicate. Mm. We can talk about what's going on. And when the devil tries to get in, because he still does. I mean, you're talking 11 years ago that he cheated on me. And the devil still tries to come back and say, oh, don't you remember when he did this to you? He owes you, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Like, oh, but you did. You know, and it's like, and I, but now we can talk about it. And we can talk about the fact that, hey, I'm feeling this way. Mm. And I'm, I'm feeling these feelings. And, and we communicate about it. And we work through that. And but we didn't used to because we used to, God was the pretty little ribbon you tie around it, the little cross that you pull out to show that, you know, we were checkbox Christians in the Mm. beginning and Mm. we're not anymore. Mm. And it's messy. It will continue to be messy, Mm. but it's beautiful. Well, you said something at the beginning, which I thought so profound is, we want to listen to everybody else and sometimes over God and, you know, we're getting all these opinions from the cu- person in the cubicle next to us or the coworker or even a family member saying, oh, here's the right thing to do. And so many times we just ignore God in these situations and God's the last person we want to, to hear from. And I love the fact that you were willing to sit down and, and have that conversation with God and, and talk through and, and, and God brought you through this and it's tough. And, you know, I know these guys, they're relatively new back to our church. But they've told me over and over again, right before this quarantine thing happened, like anybody that you can throw our way that we can minister to and help, we want to do that. And so I'm, I'm serious and they're serious. If you need a couple to walk you through life and help you kind of maybe uh, just kind of work through some stuff, even if it's not adultery, but it could be just significant challenges in your marriage, you need to talk to this couple. They want to be involved in discipleship. They want to be involved with other couples. And so I hope that you, you will take them up on that offer because God allows us to go through things so we can, what, give to other people, to yes. love other people, and lo- love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Well, thank you so much. Let me pray and have the band come back up for one last song. God, we thank you for 
your, the, the crucifixion of Jesus. And as we just, words just don't do justice to what you went through, God. And, and we admit our hearts can come very callous to the truth of, of the crucifixion. But God, we just want to say thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for his obedience. We thank you that we can come even right now in prayer. And we can come to you at all times. And we should constantly be in communication with you because of what Jesus did on that cross for us. And God, we thank you for Jesus. And I pray that our lives will be more and more about carrying our cross, taking up our cross, and following you, and letting the world see there's something different because you died and rose again. In Jesus' name we pray.